Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. We also have, uh, as we talk about week by week, a great discipleship resource. Um, We as a body are constantly working through the scriptures, um, reading day by day, discussing in our communities, then coming together to uh, sit under the word being proclaimed. So this morning, our passage for Palm Sunday is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can open open them up with me, Uh, whether you have them in print or on your phone. uh, There's no shame there. Just uh, break it open with us. And we're going to take the next few minutes just to walk right through um, this passage together. So it'll be on the screen behind me, and uh, I'll, I'll read these 11 verses, and then we'll, we'll jump in. You guys ready to roll? All right. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 21, so on. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt and the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And this is God's word. Let's pray. As we come before you and we take time uh, to sit under your word, under the power of your spirit, Lord, you know each person, each individual, each family you've brought into the room this morning. And we believe that you've brought them here for a purpose and a reason, Lord, whether they've been walking with you for many years or whether for the very first time they've stepped foot in a, in a space like this, um, they're learning and discovering your message for the first time, we thank you that you are the God who leads us and directs us and speaks to us. And we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak through this word today. And the things that I share that are from you would be remembered, Lord, and the things that are not would be long forgotten. And that we together in this space, Lord, we would leave here not just um, uh, with our minds tickled, but Lord, our hearts and our lives, the whole of who you created us to be, utterly changed, utterly, utterly transformed. Lord, I pray for our friends who are joining us online, um, those who couldn't join us this morning. Lord, we ask that you would bless them as well, um, encourage them where they are. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. We all long for a king, 
in our lives um, to give us a sense of direction, someone to protect us, someone to care for us. We're all sort of at an early age looking for who is the leader in our life that will follow. Um, Many of you saw this uh, a couple weeks ago at the Oscars, the situation that unfolded with Will Smith, and what wasn't on the headline as much was what happened right after that, which is Denzel Washington um, found Will Smith immediately, and he commented on this, um, and he prayed with him. And he talked to him about what had unfolded. And, and, and this leader, Denzel Washington, in Will Smith's life, at least in that moment, was so impactful that when he received uh, the Oscar a uh, little later in the ceremony, he referenced the conversation that he and Denzel Washington had. And all of us are like this. We're, we're looking at times for someone to be proactive in our lives and to come when we're in our darkest moments or when we're in a place of desperation and to come and to speak into our lives. I remember about eight years ago in the life of our church, we had gone through a really difficult time, and uh, a lot of things in my own life were being surfaced, things that I needed to grow in as a leader. And um, I, there were a couple guys in the body who came alongside of me, and I was sort of like, at that time, hey, maybe there's somebody better to lead because I'm just not feeling like I'm adequate. I'm feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm insecure about this. I don't know if I can do this. And these guys just kind of stepped into my life as leaders and said, Joey, you're not going anywhere. God has a call on your life. He wants some things out in you. He wants to work some things out in this church. And uh, you're not going anywhere, and we're going to be here with you. And that loving leader presence in my life was so important. They gave me a little direction. They gave me a little exhortation. It hurt a little bit. It stung a little bit. But I was well-received, and I was so grateful to this day that they kind of stepped into my life in that way. Why do we long for a king? Why do we long for a leader in our lives. And can, can, can I just say, for some of us, it's just because we're lazy, okay? And, and you know who you are in this room, if that's you. Uh, it's because you'd rather not make a decision, and you'd rather let other people make decisions for you, and you don't want to put in the time and the effort to actually um, figure things out, okay? But for most of us, um, there is a pressure that's lifted. There's a kind of safety and security. There's a rest in knowing that someone else is looking out, that someone else is responsible. And what that offers us in the deepest level of how we were created is a deep sense of peace. Why do we want a king in our life? Why do we want a leader in our life? Because desperately we all are longing for peace. But here's the problem, and, and, and this is where this passage connects with our lives this morning. Here's the problem. When we depend on a leader, an earthly leader, for our peace, we don't actually end up getting peace. Because every leader is deeply corrupt and cannot actually completely be trusted. And you just have to look at the history of the world to see this. And over the past few uh, days, few years, uh, through the history of the world, we've seen this. And maybe you've experienced this, this in your life, whether you've had a leader who's a teacher or a parent or a friend or a church leader, a pastor or an organizational leader or a politician. Uh, it doesn't matter who it is. Leaders will let us down, and they will leave us wanting and longing for the peace that we think that we can get from them. And the question this morning as we're diving in is, who is the leader in your life that you're looking to for peace this morning? I mean, who, who is it that you think will give you a sense of shalom, a sense of safety, a sense of security, and you've been looking at this person, you've been looking at this, it could be your spouse, could be a friend, could be a teacher, could be a pastor, and yet it's not going so well. They continually let you down because that is the reality of the human condition riveted with sin. And there might be a temptation that 
we would think that in giving our allegiance to a leader, in, 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 in crowning someone the king of our life, they can't actually deliver the peace that we long for. In this passage, on this Palm Sunday, we're going to discover an alternative kind of leader, a different kind of king, one who offers a lasting and an ultimate peace, kind of peace that we long for. And the way that he achieves this peace and the way he ushers peace into our lives is completely different than every leader in this world that we might look to. So there's three, there's three things we're going to, three headings we're going to look under in this passage. Okay, you can write these down. They'll be on the screen behind me. We're just going to look through this. About this king in this passage, this King Jesus, he has a posture. There's a posture to this king. Uh, there's an activity. He does something. This king doesn't just have a posture, but he actually acts. So what does he do to usher peace into our lives? What is the, first, what is the posture? Secondly, what is his activity? And then thirdly, we're going to end with there's an invitation that the king offers us. There's, a, there's an invitation. So first, let's look at the posture of the king. Verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, and I'm just going to stop right there because this, in this little verse here, we get the background to the passage that we're going to look at like here. Because the background to this passage is that the nation of Israel, they were looking for a king. They had been looking for a king throughout their history. And I'm just going to give you the very, very high overview. You can ask me later about the more in-depth account through the Scripture. But here's the the bottom line. Um, When the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, were freed uh, through Moses, were liberated... They were ruled prophets and different leaders. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6 through 22, if you want to read it, uh, they asked Samuel for a king. And in essence, uh, Samuel's pretty upset because he's like, why do you want a king? Because they wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted the safety. They wanted the security. They wanted the, all the things, the peace that they thought another a, a king, an earthly king, would give them. Long story short, uh, Samuel tells him, here's all the reasons why you don't want a king. Because kings, earthly human leaders are corrupt, and they're going to take advantage of you, and they're um, going uh, to do all kinds of bad things. And then in verse 18, he says, and when that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from, uh, from the king you've chosen, but he, that king will not give you relief. And, and, and Samuel's just transparent about it, and, and the nation of Israel is like, but we still want a king. And so guess what? The Lord says, all right, we're going to give you a king then. And so there's this, uh, this time of kings in the nation of Israel. There's Saul, and then there's David, and then there's Solomon, and there's many kings after that, which ultimately leads to the kingdom of Israel actually being divided, if you remember that. The, you're good. Come on in. Welcome. No, you're good. You're good. We're family here. Um, we're, we're talking about kings here. And uh, the, the nation then becomes divided under these kings. Okay? Ultimately, this leads to the nation of Israel being exiled, if you remember. And they end up being able to come back to the land, but they, the kingdom is never reestablished. Fast forward to the first century here, and here is the nation of Israel living under the rule of a foreign king. What king was that? Caesar, the Roman Empire. And so they are just desperately longing for a king because all through the Old Testament, even as all this is going on, there's a rustling on the pages. There's a foreshadowing that one day the God of Israel would provide the nation of Israel with a king. 
And the way they spoke about this king was different than an earthly king. In fact, some of the earliest places we see this is in Genesis chapter 49.10 when Jacob is blessing his sons and he blesses Judah through whom the messianic king, this king that they're looking for would come. And, he's, and uh, you know, um, Genesis 49.10 says, um, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Okay? Nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And so there's this rustling, there's this expectation, there's this anticipation of a king. And in fact, Zechariah chapter 9, which we're going to find Matthew quotes here, the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9, give us a sense of the kind of king they were looking for. What was the posture of the king that the nation of Israel was looking for? And if you turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9, we find in great detail the first eight verses is a king that comes and is actually conquering foreign nations with force, with power. Okay, so much so that then in verse 8, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 8, it says this, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. And this is a, this is a messianic prophecy. Okay? This is one of those passages that the nation of Israel would look back to and say, these eight verses tell us there is a king that's coming, and the posture of that king is a victorious, conquering king. He's going to come with power. He's going to use whatever means necessary. He is going to stop the people who have oppressed us all these years. He's going to set up his kingship over the nation of Israel. He's going to rule, and he's going to be even bolder and badder and stronger than every other king we've seen throughout history. That's what they're expecting, okay? That's the background to this passage, and that's the posture of the kind of king they're expecting. And then, so here we are, okay? We're here at the Mount of Olives, okay? By the way, according to Ezekiel, the, the, the Messiah is going to come from the east and come into, the, into Jerusalem from the east. And so here they are in the east of the city at the Mount of Olives. Jesus has brought everybody here. That's why it says Bethpage and um, uh, and the Mount of Olives here in Matthew 21, uh, verse, uh, verse 1 here, they might be thinking, is this the moment? <laughs> okay. His disciples, the people, the crowds, they might be thinking, is this going to actually happen? Are we, are we seeing right now the Messiah is here? But then Jesus does the most unexpected thing. Okay. Just, follow, just follow the passage here, Okay. So we're thinking big political warrior, you know, super strong, on the war horse king riding into Jerusalem. And then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to him, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Now, if the king is going to ride into Jerusalem to overthrow Caesar with all of his power, the donkey might not be the first choice of creature to ride in on. Are you with me here? Now, okay, so you think about a war horse, like, you know, it's up to here. And then you think about a donkey. Have, has anybody ridden a donkey before? I mean, they're just not, okay, some of you have, some of you have. Interesting, many of you have ridden donkeys in here. I know my wife has actually rode a donkey around the Grand Canyon one time. It was very scary. You could talk how uh, dangerous that was on the edge of the cliff. But... This donkey, okay, so donkeys are a little bit lower, but then it's not just a donkey in the passage here, but he says, what? A baby, the, the, the foal of a donkey, a baby donkey. 
go get the mother donkey and the baby donkey and bring the baby donkey to me. Jesus, this isn't how the history goes here. Didn't you read Zechariah 9, 1 through 8? Like, you know, squelching the oppressors. I don't know if the baby donkey is going to help you to do that. Why would Jesus need a baby donkey? Well, this is why you need to read the whole of Scripture and not just stop at verse 8 of Zechariah chapter 8. And maybe the nation of Israel had done that uh, through the years. Maybe they had read all the prophecies that talked about the the reigning, uh, you know, powerful king coming. But maybe they neglected verse 9 of Zechariah 9, which Matthew quotes right here. And he says this, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. That's the prophet Zechariah saying this, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Kings would ride war horses after victory. It's a position of power. It's a posture of power. In fact, even uh, Stanley Hauermas would say 200 years later as the Maccabean unfolded, the Maccabees came into the city. They came in and they were on horses and people waved palm branches, but not this king. This king comes not in a posture of power, but he comes in a posture of humility. In fact, in Luke's gospel, He doesn't even mount the baby donkey himself. His disciples place him on the donkey. How much humility do you have to have to say, I'm not going to get on that baby donkey myself, but I actually am going to have you place me on that donkey. A chapter earlier, Jesus said this to his disciples, which I think encompasses What's going on here? You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Philippians chapter 2 that describes Jesus in the wake of his death and resurrection. The New Testament writers are being filled with the Spirit, penning words down. Paul says this in, in this passage, He, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality God, with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. This is the posture of this king. It's a completely different posture than every earthly leader. Our tendency as earthly leaders is to put ourselves up in positions of power and pride. Kings of men mount war horses in their deep insecurity. They put themselves as high as they can. We're all guilty of this in some ways. They create for themselves positions of power and take on postures of greatness. They have to shout or boast or raise their voice to attempt to secure peace. That is the movement of leaders that are riddled with sin in this world. And every single human leader is like this, but not this king. His posture is humble, and he's found riding in triumph upon a baby donkey. And this picture of the king riding in on this baby donkey lays a foundation, and it's a window into the kind of lasting peace that only this king can usher in through his activity. So we have the posture of the king is humility, 
And now we're going to look at the activity of the king. Verse 9, Matthew 21. Here's what unfolds. And the crowds that went before him as he's going into the city on this baby donkey were shouting. And here is their words that they shouted. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this word Hosanna appears twice in the New Testament, one in Mark's gospel in this account, one in Matthew's gospel in this account. The, this, this phrase, this word Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, which we read with believers around the world this morning. Uh, Psalm 118.25, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. This word Hosanna translates Save now, or save now, we pray. They are asking and acknowledging for what this king has to offer peace and how he's going to usher in peace is through salvation. And Psalm 118 is also a messianic psalm. So the nation of Israel would have familiar with this psalm and said, this psalm is about the Messiah king who will come. In fact, it's so clear that they actually use the language of the son of David. What are they saying here? The kingdom that was once lost, the king that we're longing for to give us peace is being restored. And the crowd that day saw this was being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Let me ask a question. How are people saved or rescued or offered peace? Leaders in this world rely not only on a posture of power in, in contrast to humility, but often leaders have to rely on some kind of exercised power in itself, some kind of force, some kind of violence at times. And the Jewish nation, back to uh, Zechariah chapter 9, were certainly expecting this kind of leader to come. I mean, he was going to come and wipe out all of the enemies, all of the bad guys. They were going to be destroyed. All the people who had oppressed Israel for all those years, they were going to be destroyed. But what happens with this messianic king as you read on in the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 10, the most fascinating thing happens. You have this picture of a Messiah conquering king who's now coming on a baby donkey, and here's what he leaves in his wake. Listen to this. Zechariah 9, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And so we find in this humble king who's coming into the city of Jerusalem, he is not wielding a sword. There is no sword in his hand. Instead, what we will find, and we're going to meditate on this on Friday, is that he will be cut off. And it is here that peace is actually ushered to the nations. How? He says in verse 11, because of the blood of my covenant to you. Now, just track with me here. If you're uh, Jewish and you're hearing this passage and you hear the blood of my covenant, what you would be thinking about is animal sacrifice. 
back through the Old Testament uh, temple complex. And so, uh, people with sins brought animals to be sacrificed to cover their sins the Day of Atonement. But now, in the wake of the cross of Jesus Christ, we find actually this passage is speaking about something else. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial system by going to the cross, by laying himself down, by not by bringing violence upon the world, but by subjecting himself to violence. And it is because of Jesus' own blood that binds and fulfills the new covenant that God made with his people. Now think with me about this, okay? Just, just, just think through this with me, okay? Kings of men, human leaders, to at times exercise violence to gain peace that actually can't and won't last. Oftentimes, human leaders come to conquer with the sword. And we don't have to look far right now with what's happening in the Ukraine to see this unfolding. But hear this. This king, this humble king, who doesn't come with violence, but actually subjects himself to violence, comes to save the world. And he comes to save even his enemies. Do you want to understand the radical nature of the gospel? Jesus doesn't just say, I've I've come to save the world generally. He does. But he also comes to save the very people who would put him to death his enemies. And in fact, this isn't the only place where we see this. He said, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount teaching, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So we look at things that are unfolding in the world right now. We even look at a, a, a really harmful, abusive leader like Vladimir Putin, what's going on there. And I, maybe you have a different opinion than that, but that's my opinion on the situation. Jesus doesn't say, pray that he would be conquered. Jesus would be saved. This is love the enemy. Love the person who would want to do the most amount of harm to you. And why can we trust Jesus at his words? Because he came not to bring violence, but he subjected himself to the very violence of the world. Think of how counterintuitive and hauntingly powerful this is. Okay. We think in order to get peace, we need to use violence or force. Okay, Think about this just this on a very practical level in your friendships, in your marriages with your children, okay? Your spouse comes to you, your child comes to you, your friend comes to you, and they accuse you with words. Maybe they're not wielding a sword, but they certainly maybe their tongue has some sword in it, okay? Are you with me here? You tracking with me? Okay, they attempt to take something from you that's precious to you. They hurt you with their words, What happens if in that moment you turn to them and you look at them in their eyes, even in all the things that they have done wrong to you, say, you know what, I'm not necessarily saying this was right to do, but I forgive you and I love you. What can I do? What can we do to reconcile here? What can we do to work through this? I have nothing to defend. I'm sorry. How can I serve you? I'm not saying there aren't times where in the world we're called to exercise justice and sometimes we have to use force with that to stop someone who's oppressing the poor or the weak or the vulnerable. And if we have to do that, we try to do everything that we can to spare and preserve image-bearing life. 
I'm not saying there aren't. We're subjected to a world that is riddled with sin, but I am telling you that is not the picture of what we will live in eternally. The picture and the thing that we will live in eternally is the peace that only Christ brings into the world, and he did it through subjecting him his own life to death. He enacts something cosmically. Think about how, think, think about the majestic creativity of God put on display, okay? Only God can take the most horrific effect of sin within a corrupt creation, I'm calling that violence and death, and take it and utilize it by subjecting himself to it on the cross, and in doing so, restoring creation to shalom and peace and ushering in a new creation. That is good news. That is the distinction between the gospel of Jesus Christ and every other faith tradition across the planet. God himself comes. He co-ops the effects of sin, and he uses it at the very, in, as the very medium in which he accomplishes restoration and peace, not by exercising violence, but by subjecting himself to violence. So when Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, he's saying, I am this kind of king, one that does not come to bear a sword, but vulnerable, meek, willing to be conquered by the sword in love for the world. And as the people are shouting, Hosanna, I don't think they understood what they meant. I think they thought, God save, come with power. Come with violence if you need to. Destroy the enemies. I don't think they knew on that day that what they were actually saying, the consequence of that chant was to say, this man on this baby donkey riding in is actually going to be put to death himself. And that's the way peace will be unleashed in the world. Colossians 1.18 says it this way. This is not just a momentary peace. This is a cosmic, world-altering, new creation, birthing peace. Colossians 1.18 says this. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell right there on a baby donkey, humble, and through his death on the cross to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is a kind of activity flowing from the Son of God that changes everything. There's a posture to the king that is humility. There is an activity to the king, him being willing to be put to death on the cross, ushering in peace. And in the wake of these two things, this is our final observation, there then comes an invitation and it is a chilling and challenging invitation for all of us who are sitting in this room this morning. Verse 8. How does this unfold? Most of the crowd, as they see Jesus coming, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went... I'm sorry, jumping to verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem... And just listen to this. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Their hearts were stirred. 
You see, in order to establish peace, most earthly leaders, to some extent, have to command submission. Parents, are you with me? It's actually not how God created it to be. It's part of how we have to operate in this sin-saturated world. But something else happens in this account. The man who's riding in on a baby donkey commands no such, demands no such submission, and yet most of the crowd are happily laying down their lives before him, fully submitting to him, acknowledging him as king. A couple of things that are happening here. They're spreading their cloaks on the ground. Okay? This is a, a, a point, a sign of honor. This is how kings would have been received as entrances into cities. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 9, 13. Okay? Uh, garments, coats in this cultural context are important. They, they, uh, they symbolize a covering. They symbolize warmth. They sim- symbolize protection to a certain extent. They symbolize your well-being. Okay? Co- coats are expensive. Anybody have an expensive coat? Okay? And here they are laying them down on the road to let them be trampled by Jesus and his colt, Jesus and his baby donkey. They're laying their cloaks down. It's a sign of utter and absolute submission to the king. And then they're cutting branches from the trees. This is from Psalm 118, which is another messianic psalm which speaks to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the Jewish feasts that happens later in the fall. And they see the king coming. The, The Feast of Tabernacles anticipates the king Messiah that's coming. They see Jesus coming like this. And they're like, we're a few months early here, but we need to go get the branches. We need to get the branches and we need to start waving them and laying them down. Because this was a sign of the Messiah who was entering into the city. This was a sign that the Messianic kingdom was upon them. The scene, I want you to get your heart, I want us to get our hearts and minds wrapped around the scene. Can you picture this? The scene is so holy and so astonishing, okay, that in Luke's account, If you remember this, we get this great little picture. We get this great little window. In Luke's account, as Jesus is coming into the city, the Pharisees are like, Jesus, tell them to stop saying this about you. This is blasphemy. The Pharisees are thinking, you're not the Messiah. They shouldn't be be chanting this. They shouldn't be singing this. Stop this now. Do you remember what Jesus says to the Pharisees? Even if they stop saying this, the rocks will cry out. He's saying, the whole of Christian is watching this moment. The Pharisees didn't see it. They didn't understand. So holy, so powerful, so majestic is this king that even the rocks themselves of creation, a rock who, as far as we know, has no life in it, itself is crying out in honor of the Messiah. And the other little tidbit that's so powerful in Luke's gospel account as well is, do you know what else we see happening from Jesus's vantage point as he's going into the city? He's weeping. He's weeping over the city. And he says, if only you knew what peace would require. He knew that he had to go to the cross. The entire crowd is happily submitting to Christ, not out of obligation, but because they see him and they've received him as king. 
And this is where I want to end this morning. I would invite the musicians to come forward. And I want to leave us with this one question to consider in this Holy Week as we prepare for Good Friday and as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday. Some of us have sat or are sitting under unhealthy leaders. And I am not suggesting that that should go on and on and on. Okay? It's not good to sit under the abuse of an unhealthy leader. Get out of there. You should have people help you get out of there. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying this morning, and I think what this passage challenges us with, is a question of king. Who is it right now that basically you're looking to? A person, a thing, that basically you are wanting to get peace out of them. You want safety, you want security, you want wholeness, you want shalom. You want peace. And you might think they're delivering it, but they're not going to, at some point it's going to break down. Or maybe, maybe they haven't delivered it, and that's really frustrating and discouraging. This passage confronts us, and it asks us the basic question, who is Jesus Christ to you? Not theoretically, okay? Not religiously. Some of us have been sitting in church pews and church seats our entire life, and we've been going through the motions, and maybe we're involved in outreach. Maybe we give to the church. You know, maybe we serve on the music team. Maybe we greet. Maybe we lead a group. I don't know. I don't, I don't really, I don't think that's the point this morning. The point is, is Jesus Christ the king of your life? And only you can answer that and only you can wrestle with the Lord with that. Only he is the one who will be able to give you a lasting peace. So if you are stirred and you are struggling, turn to the only king. Earthly leaders are good. We need them. Okay? Healthy, loving authority is a good thing. We know they'll let us down. We know they'll be imperfect. But Christ is the king who will never, ever, ever let us down. Let's pray. Lord, it is really hard to sit in this place in this time in history, Lord, it really could have been any, could be any time in history where we experience and we see the corruption of leaders in all different facets of culture, from politics to church to world leaders to military leaders, Lord, organizational leaders. And we confess this morning that behind all of those kings, there is a king who is above every king one who is humble, one who laid his life down, and one, Lord, who woos our hearts and stirs our hearts to proclaim that he is Lord, the only one that can usher peace into our lives. So I pray for my friends in this room, my brothers and sisters, that for the first time or for a new time, Lord, we would turn to you and we would crown you, Lord Jesus, as king of our life, that we wouldn't live in fear, but we would trust you. We pray this in your name.